today. A little something else about myself that you may, if, you've, if you know me, you may have discovered this um, if you've known me for a while. I have a very high value of what I call personal space. That when I'm somewhere and I'm standing, this is my space. And then you have your personal space, and most people respect that exists, that concept of personal space. I think it's a very American idea where we value uh, property ownership and that sort of thing. And, and I will share my personal space with you by, by, with a hug or with a handshake. Uh, but for the most part, other than that, this is my space and you have your space, that's good. I recently, as some of you know, traveled to China. I discovered there that they do not have the same value of personal space. Basically, they have a much higher value of community and communal space, such that if I'm standing here, that's not my space, that's everyone's space. And the amount of, and it, the people are very polite, but the amount of pushing and bumping and rubbing into my personal space is just, that was just okay. That's just kind of how everybody moves. I was at one tourist, kind of a touristy site called, they call it the Temple of Heaven. It's so where the emperor, there's the emperor lived in the Forbidden City, and we went through that whole area. And then there was this temple where the emperors would uh, pray to the God of Heaven on behalf of the people. And you get to this one spot where you can look in and see where they store the, these banners that they use. And it's crowded, and you, they say, look, go up and crowd in and watch your wallet, because when people are close, there could be pickpockets and things, but watch your wallet and just kind of make your way to the front and you can take a picture. So I made my way to the front and I feel somebody pulling on my, I feel my pants pulling. And I think somebody's trying to pickpocket me. It wasn't, there was a woman, a little old lady, and she had me by the belt loop and she hooked my belt loop with her finger and she's pulling me out of the way so that she could get up front in my space. And I wasn't done taking my picture yet. And I turned around and she looks so sweet, and she's just like, you know, in my way. But for me, same thing on the elevator, right? So I'm on a crowded elevator. We hit lobby. Lobby's the only light up, so everybody's going to the lobby, going down, picking up people on every floor. And I'm crammed in the elevator, and the doors are right here, and it opens at the lobby, and people start filing in front of me out the elevator. And I'm thinking, we're all getting off the same elevator. Nobody's going to stay and ride the thing back up and down all day. I don't know why it's necessary we all get off at the same exact thing, but it's very commute. You're very, we're all on, and we all need to get off, and that's the subway works the same way. This was all very shocking to me culturally. Um, and I felt, so as I walk through the streets of some of these crowded cities, I'm a big guy in China. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a Westerner, so I don't look Chinese. I stick out, and I'm, and I, you know, average height, you know, as people are here, and I'm, I think you can see me, and yet people walking right into me, boom, and then they just, and I couldn't believe it. So, and I'm not saying that, it's, it's not a, a judgment thing, it's just culturally, it's just very different, and for me, very shocking, and I guess invasive. <clears throat> oh, and if you think you're funny, and you'll like bump into me to play a joke or poke me or something, you're not funny or original, so you can do it. Leave me alone. I, I share all this. Why do I share all this? Because at the heart of what's happening in the scripture today, what Jesus witnessed at the temple was a place that was way too crowded. That it is a crowded time of year as it was, but it was crowded in a way that it really should not have been. 
There was a space that God had prescribed for a very specific purpose and reason, and that whole reason was getting crowded and pushed out in a way that was, uh, that really Jesus becomes very upset here. If we, this is an important message for us, especially today, and especially in this church and in this community, for you. In the same way, our lives can become very crowded, crowded with activity, with work, with friendships, with, you know, as was mentioned, you know, school activities and sports and even church activities, and there's just all this crowding of our lives, and so easily what can get pushed out is what God has designed us for and intended us for as a church and as his people. And I want to focus on that today. It's a good message, a very timely message for us, so let's, let's pray. Father God, thank you for calling us to be your people, to, to know you and experience you. And in this time, as we look at your word, we need your spirit to be guiding us, to teach us, to show us your heart, that we might respond in obedience, Lord. May your spirit be very much at work as we look at your word this morning. Thank you for this opportunity and every opportunity we have to know you, Lord, to know your love above all else. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we're going to look at two really strange events in the life and the ministry of Jesus. These are really, uh, seem almost uncharacteristic of Jesus. And one is very famous where Jesus goes in and clears out the temple and he's flipping over the tables. The other one here we're going to start with is the, the fig tree, where Jesus curses this fig tree. Let's read this again. Verse 12. The next day they were leaving, as Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. So we have Jesus, he's hungry, he goes to a fig tree, it doesn't have any fruit on it, and he curses the tree. And we later find out the tree dies. The tree withers and dies. This does not look good for Jesus. Did Jesus, so Jesus was known as a miracle worker and had these powers. Did Jesus misuse his power? Was he just being spiteful towards a tree that didn't have fruit on it? Was he being petty? And why would you record this event? So if I'm, if I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm writing down what Jesus did and I want other people to also put their faith in Jesus and follow Jesus, do I write down the story of where he kills the tree because he's hungry? I mean, couldn't I pick another story that demonstrated his power to highlight? Maybe I leave that one out. Um, is this just an abuse of power? Jesus, right? He's the one who's supposed to bring life. Jesus is supposed to uh, create and unite, not destroy. And here Jesus kills a tree. And it wasn't the season for figs. So he's looking for fruit on a tree that nobody would expect to have fruit on it anyway. Was he just mistaken or foolish? Or what do we do with this? This, is, uh, this seems unfair to the tree and makes Jesus look bad. A couple explanations. One, and this is the one I, I would hold to. In this, this is happening at the time of the Passover. This is springtime. There's leaves on fig trees in, in ancient Palestine. And when the 
In the springtime, when there was just the fruit was just starting, there was a nodule or a little bud on the on the fig trees, which if you were poor or if you were a traveler, you might pick and eat. It was edible. And when the fruit, when the figs would grow, those would fall off the tree. So it was kind of an early season type of thing that you could eat. And perhaps Jesus, being hungry, is going over to the tree to eat these little nodules. Or another explanation is the, the early fruit, the unripened figs, would be on the tree pretty much as soon as the leaves. So even in the springtime, Jesus might have been looking for an unripe fig to eat. The problem is they taste terrible. Even though you know, local people were known to eat them, they, they just, it tastes terrible. Quick story, I was in China, and I, I resolved to eat everything they put on the table in front of me. So every, and I didn't order any food. It was just all family style, like plates and plates of food. I was going to try everything and be respectful. I was served something called stinky tofu. Is anybody familiar with stinky tofu? Okay. That's what they call it. It's really stinky. And I tasted it, and it was terrible. Stinky tofu was so bad, we had to have the server come and remove it from the table because it smelled like middle school locker room. <laughs> like sneakers. It was that stinky. Now, pretty much everything... <laughs> Pretty much everything else I ate was, was pretty good or delicious. Stinky tofu is terrible. And they take it off the table, and our local guides are kind of smiling at me because I'm making these faces. And I said, that was terrible. Who eats that? And they looked at me and they said, no one eats that. Nobody, eats, nobody likes stinky tofu. That's why we call it stinky tofu. I said, well, then why'd you serve it to us? And they said, yeah, they're just kind of part of the cultural thing, just... It was, and they're laughing and having a great time. And they served me stinky tofu. Anyway, um, oh, the early figs on the fig tree would have tasted terrible. So I don't know if that's quite what Jesus was going for. Regardless of what Jesus actually expected, he's, he's making a point. He went over to the fig tree to tell, it was to teach a parable, but not a parable story, a parable that he lived out. He went to the tree to make a point. And he's actually making the same point at the tree as the point that he makes later at the temple. His point is that, again, the point isn't that he was hungry or not hungry. It, it's a metaphor. It's a parable. The fig tree is a metaphor for Israel. And if you read the Old Testament, a common image of Israel, God's people, is a tree, a fig tree, or other types of trees or plants. And the prophet Micah said it like this. This is... God speaking through the prophet Micah, seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. God says, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is, no, there is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. So maybe it's these early figs that is in sight here. But the point is that God is going to his plant and he's expecting fruit and he finds none and this is not right. That when you see the leaves on the tree and there's no fruit present, that something is wrong. And it's, it's a parable against hollow religious practices. You can give a fig tree that's not doing its appointed job. Now you have God's people, Israel. They are busy. They are gathered. It's the peak season of worship. It's Passover. There's hundreds of thousands of Jews traveling to Passover to celebrate the Passover, to offer sacrifices, to pay their temple tax. And it's so active, but it's empty. The warning for us is a lot like our 
church. I mean, this room is full of people. We've got kids, and we've got young and old, and we had a service earlier this morning, and there's another service right now in North Andover, and we've got a picnic today, and we've got a prayer meeting tonight, and we've got a Nerf war. If you're the right age, there is a Nerf war that will happen in this building, believe it or not. And we had a whole activity at Andover Day. Yes, there's so much activity. The question for us is when God looks back behind the leaves of all this stuff we're doing, does he see real fruit? Or does he just see a lot of activity? It's a good warning for us. Busyness does not equal spirituality, even if your busyness is churchy busyness and good-looking busyness. It doesn't equal true fruit. What is true fruit? Jesus told us, John chapter 15, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name, and this is my command, love each other. He said, I chose you to be fruitful, real fruit, and as you bear fruit, you're going to have effective prayer, and you're going to have effective love for one another. Or you could say, love God, love others. Effective prayer, effective love of one another. What is the fruit? The fruit is the fruit of what God produces in us. And again, fruit isn't something that we produce on our own. It's something that the Spirit of God, as God's Spirit invades our lives and changes our hearts, that is produced in our lives. The Apostle Paul, one of the early Christians, he said the fruit of God's Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the type of fruit that, that God is working in us. So you can do all your activities, but when we look behind those activities, are those things being done in love of God and love of other people? Is it being done with self-control and kindness and goodness to our neighbors, to one another? That's the better question. And the question then is, how do I get that fruit? How do I get that real fruit, the fruit of the Spirit? Jesus told us, again, John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Okay, another horticultural image here. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's all about fostering our relationship, remaining in Jesus, fellowship with God. Primarily through prayer, communication with God. That's why it's a busy season, it's a busy week. We're starting with a prayer a week, we're starting with a week of prayer and fasting. Can we, as we enter into the busyness of life, take enough time to stop and pray? Maybe you, maybe you have to skip a meal just to focus on, on the Lord, to seek his word. I, I encourage you, participate fully as much as you can in this week of prayer and fasting together with us that we might keep this central thing primary. There's booklets on the welcome desk. If you didn't get a prayer week booklet last week, please pick one up on your way out. I know it's frenetic out there. I know there's balloons. We'll find you a prayer week booklet so that we can do this together and start off together. Uh, So that's the fig tree. The fig tree was about a lot of activity but no fruit. Similarly, now we have Jesus entering the temple. Let's take a look at this. Verse 15. It's on the back of your bulletin. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. 
He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. We know from the Gospel of John that people were selling cattle and sheep and doves. And other people, so what would happen is a number of families would travel to, uh, travel to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to worship, and they would need animals for sacrifice. And depending on what was appropriate for your family, but you wouldn't bring that with you. It would be more convenient to buy it there. You also had to pay a special tax, and you had to exchange your foreign currency for the temple currency so that you could pay the tax. And Jesus goes in, and he sees all this happening in the temple court, and he just gets so upset, and he flips over the tables, and he's chasing everyone out. Not necessarily because it was a scam. Not necessarily because people were being ripped off. And he uses a den of robbers language, and we think there must have been some sort of uh, people taking advantage of one another. And there may have been. But for the most part, this was a really necessary thing for people. They actually needed their currency proper. They needed their animals. They, and Jesus, look at verse 15. He's driving out those who are buying and selling. It's not just the sellers. It's the whole fact that this is taking over the temple court. As far as we know, this type of market where they were buying and selling used to take place over near the Mount of Olives which is near the temple, across from the temple, but not right in the temple courts. And right around the time of Jesus, within a few years perhaps, this activity made its way into the temple courts, so it was like a huge marketplace. But that's not God's design. God had set up the temple, including all the courtyards, in a very specific way to show people how he was to be worshipped, how they could uh, offer sacrifices, who he was and who, how serious sin is. All these things God is very intentionally demonstrating, but it's all getting crowded out because people are buying and selling this stuff. The point of that place was prayer and worship, and it totally got lost. Jesus quotes two passages. I want to show them to you up on the screen here. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But look at the context. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, which says this. He says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and who hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my, within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and, and to worship him, and who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, to these foreigners I will bring, my holy, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. God's intent, the trajectory of God's work in the world is that all people could be in his presence. All people could worship freely, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your, if you have any deformity or health problems, regardless of your gender, you could worship God fully, but, but not yet. 
So he's saying, look, it's coming. If, if, you, if you commit yourself to me as I've committed myself to you, there's a special place for you in my, in my kingdom. There's a special worship for you. You're going to be even greater than a son or a daughter. It's for you, but right now, this is the way worship works. Um, foreigners could only go in the outer court. They could only get that far. Women could only get in so far. If you were deformed or had a physical disability, you could only go so far. Men could only go so far. Then if you were a priest, you could get a little further, and then one priest on a special day could enter into God's most holy presence. But only one person. God's saying, there's coming a day where this whole thing, there won't be these walls and these divisions. But for right now, it's coming. Be patient. Don't say that you're just, don't say that you're an outsider. Don't say that you're just deformed or a dry tree. It's for you and it's coming. But this outer court was as far as the Gentiles could go. This is where they were to seek God, to pray to God, and to experience him. And this is the very place where the Jewish people were just buying and selling all their stuff. Then uh, Jesus says, you've turned this into a den of robbers. This comes from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 7. Take a look at this one. This is where Jesus is quoting from. It says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly and do not oppress the alien and the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own home, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But what's happened is, look at verse 9. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. The Lord says, look, you're not going to get away with this. You can't just do all these injustices. You can't, if you're not practicing you know, love of you know, foreigners and, and non-Jewish people, and if you're not including and you're not how can you possibly come to my house and say that you're just fine? And this is what Jesus finds when he gets to the temple. It's the place where the outsiders are supposed to come and be able to gather and pray, totally pushed out. It's a pretty big court, 300 meters by 450 meters. That's a pretty big place. When Jesus goes in, he starts flipping tables. He's probably just in one part of this court. But it's a big place, but there's a lot of animals. Kids, kids, you're here today. Have you ever been near cows? I mean, a cow takes up a lot of space, and you don't want to get real close to a cow. And when you get that many animals in one place, what do you notice when there's a lot of animals in one place? They stink, and they poop. And you got to deal with that. And here's a place where people are supposed to be praying and reflecting, and it's crowded with noisy, smelly animals. The Jewish historian Josephus, he once accounted that at a Passover, around the time of Jesus, there were 255,000 sheep that were bought and sold in one, one Passover season. Quarter of a million sheep? Think of the clutter and this totally undermines the mission. They, they filled this court. It was supposed to be for prayer, supposed to be for... And this is as far as a Gentile can go. And even that's getting pushed out. Primarily, Jesus said, this is supposed to be a house 
of prayer. This is about worship, not just convenience for the insiders, but for those around us. So what do we do with this? What, what, do, we, what do we do? The first thing, remember that we are to be a house of prayer. Not so much this building. We as Christians, we are God's house as people. We are to be a people of prayer. We could be a church that prays, and that's good, but we want to be a praying church, a church that, a praying church, which is different than a church that prays sometimes or when you need it. We are people, we are a people of prayer. That's why we're stopping here at the beginning of the week. We're going to have a nice picnic today, and then we're going to focus this week on prayer. Please join us. But remember, a house of prayer for the nations. This is a people who God had chosen to reveal himself to the world, and they were to be welcoming as much as they were able of outsiders. How can we as a church be a church that isn't just to care for each other's needs and to support each other's marriages and families? Yes, those are good things. We need to do that. But how can we love our neighbors around us? How can we welcome them into this place? How can we open ourselves, even opening our own prayer life, to be praying not just for our own needs, but for the needs of others? So would you pray for six? We have these pray for six bookmarks out on the welcome desk. And you can write down names of people who don't know the Lord, and you can be praying on their behalf and praying for them and and, and lifting them up to the Lord. Or just, if you don't like making lists, just pray for one person or ask God to put someone on your heart to pray for. But opening our prayer lives for people who are not here yet Maintaining an outward focus. And when we do gather, just being very mindful of of welcoming one another and people who are visiting from from other places or new to town or just welcoming people into our family and to be mindful of not just talking to each other. We have this thing that we we used to be, uh, we kind of haven't done as much lately, but we call the three-minute rule. And some of you might remember the three-minute rule. The three-minute rule works like this. You come to church, Church ends, this, our worship service ends, and I give a benediction, and you go find someone who you need to talk to, who you need to catch up with because the family member is sick or because they're in need or you want to check in how they're doing or you haven't seen them in a while, you want to say hi to people you know. And what the three-minute rule is, instead of doing that, you wait, and when the service ends, you just greet somebody you don't know, maybe somebody who's new to the church or somebody you haven't met, and you just learn their name and just say hello to them and take three minutes to meet someone you don't know. And if your friend does the same thing, then you can still check in about the family member after that's done. Now, if you do three-minute rule and your friend doesn't, then they're gone. And it doesn't work. And it's not a rule meaning, you know, everybody has to do this. But it's 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 a way, it's a posture. It's a way of thinking about I'm gathered with people and I don't know them and I just want to meet them so that we can welcome and know one another. One of the reasons that people don't like the three-minute rule is because of this. You go after service, you go up to somebody and say, hey, nice to meet you. Are you new here? And they say, actually, I've been worshiping at this church for 28 years. And you say, oh, I'm sorry. Um, when that happens, just laugh. <laughs> That's right. I, I, knew, I, knew, I knew that. I was just kind of, you know, we're just, we're all here. It happens, right? It's a big Look at that. There's a ton of people in this room. There were people sometimes at different services and we're in different towns. It happens. And if you're one of those people who you've been here for 28 years and people keep coming up to you like, hey, new person, how are you? And you're like, no, I'm 28 years here. I've been... Just laugh. They, people, don't worry about it. I, people forget faces and they, 
and you probably you know lost weight and look better anyway. So just <laughs> just put that aside. We'll all laugh together. But but again, this is just a way for us to be less focused in and more focused out. This is this is the point here. Don't crowd people out. Invite them in. Things like Alpha and other ways that people can explore Christ. Great ways to don't crowd them out. We're inviting in um, all these different ways. But here's the the thing, and I'll finish with this. And I mentioned this last week. We can be, we can try to stay focused on prayer and worship and and being the people that God has called us to be. We're going to fall short. We really need Jesus to change our hearts, to be continuing to change us. And that change is possible because we can be in his presence fully today, all people. Look at what happens to Jesus here. The chief priests and the teachers, they don't say, hmm, this is interesting teaching. What a fascinating teacher. What do they say? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began for looking for a way to kill him. Jesus comes into the temple. He comes into our lives, and he, he terse, to, tosses everything over, declaring himself to be in charge, in, that he is the king. And you can't just say, hmm, that's good teaching. You either have to kill him or you have to crown him as Lord. But Jesus Christ knows that we fall short of this great standard of love, and he died for us. He took that penalty. He took all the guilt and the shame. He took it on the cross. And what happened in that moment, again, the Gentiles could only go so far. Women could only go so far. Priests could only go so far. But in the moment when Jesus died, where God's presence was known in this temple was a very holy place, the most holy place, and it was separated from the people. That separation and all the walls that separated the women and the Jews and the disabled, all those were, there's a tear in that barrier. It's the, that curtain is torn from top to bottom. And now God's presence can be known and he can be experienced by all people everywhere, regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity or your gender. That is, and also that's why we condemn all forms of racism and ethnocentrism. It, 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 it does not matter your background. Christians can never justify uh, things like racism and ethnocentrism. Uh, That it's wide open now. That all can be welcomed in. All can experience God's presence fully. There is no more set of sacrifices for certain people. Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice. It's now for all people. Can we now be a people who respond to that invitation, that love, the opportunity to know and experience God by by loving him and seeking him in prayer and, and loving others and welcoming them into into this family. Amen.